you would like to welcome you to another episode of Reading Across the Curriculum, a book talk series on our Changemaker Conversations in Education podcast channel of the Alberta Regional Professional Development Consortia, or ARPDC. This is our first episode for Season 3, and we look forward to many great conversations with educators and authors over the 2023-2024 school year. As always, we welcome your suggestions for guests on our podcast. You can email us at rick.gilson at arpdc.ab.ca. I'm Rick Gilson, Executive Director of the Southern Alberta Regional Office of ARPDC, and my co-host in this series is Charlie Craig of both the Central and Northeastern Regional Offices of ARPDC. Our guest today is Karen Filowich. We'll talk a little bit more about Karen in a second, but first, we would like to engage in a brief conversation acknowledging where we live and what our nation has gone through over the centuries of its evolution. I live in Treaty 7 land. This is the land of the Blackfoot Confederacy primarily and Métis Region 3. As we uh, record this, we have just recently, this past weekend, had our National Truth and Reconciliation Day in Canada. And I think it's important to once again remind our listeners, and maybe for the first time, of a great book called Valley of the Bird Tale by uh, Andrew Stobel Snyderman and Douglas Sanderson. Our first episode last year was with the authors of this book. And you can learn so much about what we've done so wrong in our nation over the centuries and how we need to work to understand those who have walked this land before us, learn from the elders that are with us these days, and remember that every child matters as we reflect upon the impact of the residential schools in Canada and in many areas in the United States. And uh, so with that, um, we'll go over to Charlie to uh, introduce Karen and say anything you'd like to say as well, uh, Truth and Reconciliation-wise, Charlie, and then we'll get rolling. All righty. Uh, well, um, no matter where we live in Alberta, in North America, really globally, uh, <laughs> the land um, is uh, an important piece and I and I've got this really great quote um, that I found on the website formerly known as Twitter and it talks about how um, for you know indigenous peoples the land is kin the land is family um, and that's the connection piece and so when we do land acknowledgements um, while for some people they seem performance, and, and not action-based, um, it is a time for us to take the tiniest of tiny steps and acknowledge the kinship um, between the original stewards of the land um, and the land itself and the role that um, those of us who are settlers to the land play in disrupting that kinship and the role we can now play in offering our own connection and relationship with the land as the tiniest of tiny movements um, towards reconciliation mm -hmm. with the, the history that's in our country. 
Um, we are very excited today to bring uh, Karen Filowich as our first guest on which the it's the second season of the reading across the curriculum, third season of the podcast channel for anyone who's panicking and thought they missed a season out there. Uh, you didn't. And so Karen has over 25 years of educational experience as a teacher, school administrator, and language arts consultant. She enjoys sharing her passion for literacy with teachers and students. She has published several books and offers all kinds of professional development uh, for teachers across the country um, and is thankfully, gratefully, part of our ARPDC consultant um, team. And so Karen also has a website, well, uh, wordschangeworlds.ca, if you want to check that out. And so today we welcome Karen Filowich to our podcast. How are you, Karen? I'm wonderful. Thank you both for having me today. Okay, so we start with a super easy question. Ready? I'm ready. What, okay, what are you currently reading? It could be personal or professional or both. I always have fiction and nonfiction on the go. There's always, you know, the choice of both, depending on my mood that particular night. I just finished Sarah Polly's book, uh, Run Towards the Danger, which was a fantastic read and, and honestly not what I was expecting at all. So highly recommend that one. That was a lot of fun. Um, for uh, nonfiction, I'm about to start. I have something to tell you. This is actually, <clears throat> excuse me. I Have Something to Tell You is actually the Young Readers edition. Um, it's a memoir by Chastin Buttigieg and uh, the husband of, of course, the other Buttigieg that most of us are familiar with. So I'm excited to read that one, but I haven't quite started that one yet. I just finished a Run Towards the Danger. And then as for fiction, I'm always trying to read middle grade. I'm trying to read what the students that I'm working with are reading. And so I'm currently reading Free Water, which is a fairly new book by Amina Lukman Dawson. And it's already a Newbery Award winner and a Creta Scott King Award winner. And I'm just about a third of the way in and already I love it. Um, and so uh, middle grade is tends to be what I'm reading when it comes to fiction. And then I throw in, you know, I'll throw in a thriller or throw in something else every once in a while, but that's what I'm currently reading. Okay, so let's talk about Run Towards the Danger, because I too yes. have read this book um, as a recommendation from a friend of mine. Um, were you a fan of Road to Avonlea back in the Once Upon a Time, Karen? You know, I, I watched it here and there, but I wasn't obsessed with it. I wasn't watching it all of the time. I was more familiar with her work, her more recent work, actually. And that's sort of why I, I thought I'd read it. But fascinating read about her you know childhood acting endeavors and everything behind that just really really interesting I have family members who are in the film industry so that's always an interesting perspective for me as well um, and one of them is working with child actors all the time so that was really quite fascinating actually I just like I so once upon a time back in the wilderness where I grew up. No, it wasn't that bad. But anyways, we only had two channels. There was CBC and CFCN and Sunday nights were held for the world of Disney, followed by Road to Avonlea. And um, our bedtime always came in the middle of Road to Avonlea. And so we had to watch like the last half hour the next day. Um, 
because we had the power to tape it. Anyway, um, I was just blown away, right? And I, (laughs) yeah, anyway, so as I was reading her book, I was like, I can't, this is so disruptive to what I believed was happening in this idyllic PEI setting. (laughs) Um, And just this idea that, you know, we, the rest isn't always the answer. And I just, I really liked the disruption of um, the messaging and just her story. And she's such a great writer. She is a great writer. And I, I would agree with you about the disruption. I kept waiting for why are we running towards the danger? What's the danger that we're running towards? And it wasn't until the last section of the book that we, we hear her concussion story. That's what it starts from. And how there was a doctor who was encouraging her to, to, to not rest, as everyone else had been saying, but to actually push through the threshold of comfort and run towards the danger. And in fact, he sort of yelled it at her, is her interpretation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that too has got me just thinking there, that there was a little shift in my thinking as well. So I agree with you. Interesting read. Yeah. So Rick, um, I don't know if this is on your play on your list, but she does suffer concussion. And in your land of go sports teams, concussions are a thing. And so you might be of interest. It might be of interest to you to read uh, that, that story um, in part because she's Canadian and a great writer, but also because there's this scientific piece, medical piece around concussion support and recovery and, um, just some differing opinions of anyways I thought it was a great book and apparently it is the same doctor who uh, was responsible for helping Sidney Crosby um, in the states as well so that sport connection might also entice you to read (laughs) I was enticed at the outset but now I'm further (laughs) now sold (laughs) see now it's been downloaded to the kindle as we speak I know how this works Um, sports Go sports team. Yep, that's me. Speak speak a little bit more about this Newberry award-winning book that you're just uh, starting. Yeah, so Free Water is, it's really interesting too, because when I think about um, the books that I want students to be reading in the classrooms, I want, um, like Rudine Sims Bishop has said, we want books to be both mirrors and windows. And I'm always looking for books that are going to speak to, to kids in different ways. And this one is really interesting because it's um, slaves set in a time where these children are slaves and they're escaping from their situation. And so just, you know, not very far into it at the moment, but it, it you can tell already how powerful a story it is. And really, I think when we think of students these days, that seems so, that idea seems so foreign to them and a hard one for them to relate to. And that's the power of story, right? Is how we can really access um, some of these things that wouldn't, we wouldn't otherwise understand and why not do it through the power of a good story. Seeking to develop empathy and things of that nature. There, there are so many activities in classrooms this last week to try to not traumatize no i want to emphasize and not really one who buys into the notion that they're traumatized by having these conversations the trauma happened decades ago to others it's trying to empathize trying to understand and uh my wife my wife shared with me a a post where a teacher had orange paper 
and asked all of the students, and I'll try to do justice to the story. It was uh, on Facebook, um, elementary grade class, and asked the kids to write down something that's really important to them, really valuable to them on the orange paper. And uh, so they did. And then she came around and gathered all of these and crumpled them up and put them in the garbage. Took this valuable piece and put it in the garbage, took it away from them. And uh, proceeded to share the story of the orange shirt uh, and the legacy behind that. And uh, one of the little boys went and dug out of the garbage his and spread it out, smoothed it out, and put it back on his desk. Which was a pretty powerful piece and not something she had planned for, but something that as a, I think, a, a quality teacher would, she invited those who would like to recover their most valuable things to do. So, you know, it's, a, it's the power of uh, imagery and, and analogy that builds um, understanding and empathy. Absolutely. Those are some of my favorite moments in the classroom. And they are the ones sometimes you can't plan for. But for me, it often comes through story and some of the reactions that you get or some of the comments that are made. And all of a sudden you're walking in the shoes of a, of a character or, you know, whatever it is that you happen to be reading. And in that, that I got goosebumps as you were telling that story, because I think it is powerful. It's, it's a, it's a way that kids can access the, this large idea of what happened. And, you know, I think it's incomprehensible for most of us to think about what has gone on in our country, you know, and, and most of us did not live it. And so to get that little bit of understanding, as you were saying earlier, Charlie, that's what it to me it is. It's it's those little bits of understanding and, and helping to honor what has happened before. And those kids in that classroom are going to remember that. Absolutely. Oh, forever. And you know, it, if there was some moments of feeling bad or sad or trying to figure out what you're feeling, um, and and the same occurs in any book you read. Uh, there's you know moments of discomfort of you're reading Valley of the Bird Tale, and there should be. There should. Be. Um, but if those build uh, and a level of empathy, a level of understanding, uh, a level of seeing something as if for the first time, to uh, borrow from uh, Frost's poem, right? On this and see this path as if for the first time. Uh, that's the power of literature and literacy in our lives. And anyone who's saying no, 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 no on these things, and it is happening across North America and some places far more than other, um, I think that's driven out of, of fear uh, that uh, is not to our benefit. And those books that are being banned are exactly the ones that we want our students to be reading right now and, and you know, helping them figure out the world. I mean, that, that to me is what reading is all about, is, is learning about ourselves, learning about our place in the world. And Michelle, 
Borba in her book Unselfie talks about the research behind, you know, how reading fiction does create more empathic people. You know, it really does uh, bring us into the into the world of others. And, you know, even if it's just sometimes <clears throat> helping us understand someone else's perspective. Uh, I, you know, I think about all the students that I've had in my classroom over the years, and they obviously have had a, such a, a myriad of experiences. And it's often through story that they begin sharing their own stories as well, because they share the connections to the books that we're reading. And I really think we can build empathy that way. You know, it's interesting as, as you guys are talking and, you know, we're talking about being uncomfortable while you read certain things. Um, and I think this PS, our conversation will not all be about this, Karen. And so if you're, you know, worried, like, where is this going? We've got a little road trip down, like, the little path. Um, but the, I was reading Clearing the Plains um, back several years ago as, you know, part of a commitment to build better understanding around foundational elements of the history of Canada. And I was so disturbed by the contents of that book um, that I had to put it away. And then, interestingly enough, I picked up a book about slavery in the U.S. and I read it and it too was horrific, but it was far enough away from my contexts, understandings that it didn't unsettle me the way this other book did. And that alone made me pause and go, okay, so the universe is trying to tell you something, Charlie, what is happening here? This book here is just as unsettling as this book over here Two horrific elements of various histories that have continued to impact systems and people and society yet one you felt okay reading and one made you uncomfortable so what does that say and like it was just this personal sort of like huh little moment time to bust yeah gotta bust out the journal and think through the think this through because something's going on here I was um just yeah. going to say that's the power of reflection too because if yes. we don't have those moments if we don't take time to think about why why did that one unsettle me more than this even though they're both significantly horrific what what is it and I think that's the power of you know when we think about in the classroom when we have reader response writing we don't know how students are going to react to something that we read we really just have no idea we don't know their background knowledge we don't know their their background experiences for that matter sometimes and so sometimes kids connect to particular books in ways that are totally unexpected. And I think as teachers, we have to expect the unexpected and expect the emotion to come with it sometimes um, because the literature we know is so powerful. And it's as a teacher, it, it's got to be okay for a student to have a reaction different than ours. And, 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 and over here on the spectrum, and maybe there's a need to do some teaching and discussion about it, but most of the time, it's just, hey, learn from that reaction yourself. That's right. Don't overreact. Don't overreact to a reaction you didn't expect. Exactly. And sometimes the discussion that comes from those moments, those are those unplanned moments that that sometimes happen. And it can, you know, don't, don't, don't keep going. Don't move on to math if <laughs> if those moments happen to transpire, because we really want to capitalize, I think, on the power of those situations. 
So um, we're going to switch paths a little bit, um, but we might come back over here to our, our windows and mirrors and sliding glass doors. Um, tell us about your recent book, Karen, uh, Literacy Leadership Matters. What what brought you to write it? What Tell us, tell us a story about your book. Yes. So that book was interesting because my previous two books with Pembroke had been on the teaching of writing, which is absolutely my, my passion. And I was doing so many different sessions with teachers. And, and then I was a language arts consultant and I myself am a former administrator. And one of the things that kept coming up was that here we had, especially in our elementary schools, we have these administrators who have no literacy background. You know, when they went to, you know, the faculty of education, they might have specialized in physics or, you know, something entirely different. And they taught their whole careers in another area. And then here they are finding themselves in an elementary school where we know the teaching of literacy is so prominent. And they felt there was no background information for them, no background knowledge. So when I was a language arts consultant, I started doing little newsletters for administrators. And I would just have some, you know, key points. I would often include a quote and, and some key points for them to look for. I would sort of narrow in on one particular topic. So it might be oral language or it might be writing, whatever, whatever, whatever it happened to be that month. And it the uptake was amazing. And I knew that it was important to people when the day before I was about to send it, I was getting emails saying, where's the, <laughs> where, where's Let's Talk Literacy? And that's what I had called it. And so that conversation just kept coming up over and over again. And, and I think with the science of reading, we know that, that that data has been around for years, but for whatever reason, the, the, yeah, the practice hasn't changed in our classrooms as much as maybe we, we would have liked it to. So the, the premise behind the book is to give literacy consultants and administrators that foundational knowledge and I've broken it into the different strands of language and to give them you know so they don't have to go do the research themselves here's the research here's what that research tells us should be happening in the classrooms and here's what to look for in your school and you know really helping administrators facilitate those conversations and learn with their teachers. You know, we can't presume just because we have a teacher teaching grade one that they know how to teach reading to their students. You know, that would be ideal, but that's not reality. And so, you know, it's about that journey. I'm hoping it's about that journey that an administrator or a literacy lead takes their staff on throughout the year and just really intentionally trying to improve the practice in, in the classroom. Well, and there's been a, shift I think in the administrative portfolio over time to truly now include instructional leadership as part of the work that they do um, and I think because of that obviously we're we're paying attention the role of the administrators the supervisor supervisor evaluator piece around you know T, TQS um, but you're right because the there's a lot of folks that just need help in knowing what does it look what does it look like to be an instructional leader around all subjects but you know in this book's case literacy um and i love that you've created something that does some of that heavy lifting right because at the end of the day none of us have time to do more <laughs> So if, yeah. if there's a book or a resource that I can go to that helps me, you know, fulfill that piece of my portfolio around instructional leadership, yay. 
that was exactly the intention is to do that heavy lifting and also to give administrators like to empower them to understand the language that our teachers are hearing and using all the time even when we look in the curriculum and and we look at some of the terminology I mean ask many administrators what phonological awareness is and they don't know or they don't know the difference between phonological awareness and phonics and morphology has been a whole new <laughs> uh, term that we're using in schools all the time and is in our curriculum and if we don't even understand the terminology how do we know what we're looking for in terms of best practice in the classroom so that was the the real intent behind that book um, and and I know that many schools and divisions are using it as a study guide throughout the year and they're using it with their teaching staff or the you know the administrators are reading it and then they're using the conversations I have at the end of every chapter just sort of a line master that you can either print out or just project and those there have questions there that you can talk about with your staff just to get those conversations around literacy to ensure that we're on the same page and you know in every school we have teachers who have been teaching let's say the same grade for 15, 20 years, you know, that's not uncommon. And there's an assumption that, that that is best practice then because they've done it for so long. And that's not always the case. And like sometimes those people have stayed teaching in the same way they have as they started 15 years ago. We do have others that have, you know, read and researched and, and continued their own learning journey. But we, we really need to make sure those conversations in schools are happening. And I'm hoping that this book leverages that. It was originally intended more for elementary principals, but I've had districts hire me to work with every administrator in their district. And, you know, it's very interesting, actually, the uptake from the junior high and high school principals. Um, and they're asking me to come in now and work with the, those teachers so that we do see how literacy is, a, you know, they teach in it, of course, in a different way, but how should literacy be uh, underpinning all we do in those junior high and high school classrooms. And I love that. I love, I love working with a science teacher who thinks that I have no business, <laughs> you know, instructing them on what they're doing, because believe me, I'm not skilled in science or math in those, in those ways. And yet we can really talk about how to leverage some of those literacy skills in their classrooms. Well, I think we've had whole episodes talking about that. Hey, Rick, of folks that don't think reading is everywhere, but it is everywhere. Reading, well, where, where is phonics and phonemic awareness more than a chemistry class there or a biology go. class? There you go. And, you know, it's interesting, Karen, you've said, you know, you're, we've tossed around phonological awareness and phonics and da-da-da-da. One of the things I think we do in education um we have buzzwords right now. It's the science of reading and um, we fling them around, but no one ever asks deeper probing questions to ensure that the person using that phrase has the same working definition as you, right? Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, it was balanced literacy, That's right. you know? Um, and so being able as an administrator, as an instructional leader, as a colleague to dig in. And in these are not attacking questions. No, they are, hey, are we all on the same page uh, with each other when we use this particular phrase? Because if we're not, that's problematic. And um, because of the environment that we currently work in, 
there's a lot of slinging of things going around that that isn't representative of perhaps the best definition of you know particular concepts or elements around literacy instruction. I never thought I'd work in like this hot topic uh, subject area, but apparently, you know, we do. <laughs> we do. And, yeah. and it seems to shift and change and those buzzwords change and evolve over time. But, you know, that that's exactly right. Just making sure we're having the conversation so that we are on the same page and that we know that the what we I mean, ultimately, what it comes down to is the research informing our instruction and and if it's not why not right and and it, it's easy to get comfortable doing something and I love teaching this particular unit in this particular way you know and I get that I get that perspective but really thinking about you know it's not necessarily changing our whole practice that's one of the most important things I think we need to communicate it's not about changing our entire practice it's about those small shifts of instruction ultimately with the goal of improving student learning and really when teachers see how accessible that is it's not always as scary as they might think it is and teachers too have differing understandings of the many <laughs> terms that we're using often and when we're seeing them now reflected more in curriculum that's where I think we have an opportunity I, that's how I like to look at it okay new curriculum whatever province we happen to be in gives us that opportunity to talk about these things. And of course the curriculum is always the, the what are we teaching? And then the conversation that I love is the pedagogy, the how, how are we going to do this most effectively? Because we're, we're you know, asked to do the what, we're told what we need it to do in the classroom, but that the how is left up to us. So let's make sure that we're doing it in a way that's going to be most effective for our students. Can I ask you, because what, what Charlie says is so true to science of reading. It's like a, it's, it's, it's like it's a, a literacy version of the Democrat Republican war or, <laughs> or, or, or whatever. Uh, the ability to slide into contempt so easy, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, it, it feels like it has that potential. Um, I, I remember as I was working on my dissertation years ago, uh, you know, you were supposed to be able to sort of summarize what your dissertation is about in a three floor elevator ride, you know, that, that length of time. Is it possible to, to say, this is the science of reading in a three, four, three floor elevator ride. Is that even I think possible? the best way to approach it is to think of it as a body of research that has been accumulating for over 20 years. People think it's new, it's being added to, but it's not new. It's, it's this body that has existed for over 20 years that we're continually adding to. And, and the research is very, very clear in terms of what it's pointing to. And so I think it's just acknowledging that's what it is. You know, it's not, it's not one research study. It's not, uh, you know, one particular person that's driving this. It's that accumulation. So that probably was not a three to four <laughs> floor elevator ride. Well, sure. We're only on a floor and a half so far. You know, okay. it's not, it's not, it's not a, <laughs> or it's a really we, slow it's, elevator. It's a 1956 elevator. Oh, <laughs> good. That helps. That helps. No, but I think that's the best way to think about it because I, I do think there's misunderstanding that the biggest misconception is that it's new and it's actually, you know, this, this body that's been building for so long. So uh, I think acknowledging that is key. Uh, in one of uh, 
Bev Smith, who works with us in our office, uh, she likes to refer to it in the plural, the sciences of reading. Uh, yeah, and, and that makes perfect sense to it me does. because there's so many elements that's true. Uh, to it. Um, it's it, just as with, uh, and I did jokingly, but not so much jokingly refer to it as it's like the Democrat Republican wars. It, it Friendships have been lost in the literacy world and literature world uh, over interpretations of yay, nay, or otherwise on this, on on what we spoke about earlier in terms of the importance of exposing our students to factual history and lived experience and how we don't all have the same lived experience. It's true that this is problematic, but there's got to be some basis, some foundational stuff that's just, we got to do this for all our, our students. Just like the evolution of from ELL to EAL. You know, right. it's just a it's just a better world when we say it's not English language learners; it's English as an additional language learners. They they already are competent in whatever language they brought to the classroom. We just need to add another language. That's right, and I think when it comes to the polarizing nature of you know the, that term, the science of reading, and all it brings, I think part of it too is when we think about teachers. They have long held passionate beliefs about the teaching of reading in particular. And, you know, I think for some teachers, it feels like sort of an assault on what they've been doing. And that's not the way it's intended at all. And that's why I think it's important to recognize that it is just small shifts in what we're doing that can be powerful. And it's not saying that what we've been doing is entirely wrong, but let's look at what we now know about the brain and the way the brain works. And, and let's utilize that to our, you know, just thinking about it in that way can be really powerful is, is, is not, you know, don't throw that baby out with the bathwater, right? Like, let's look at what we're doing that already is great. And then what can we do to add? I was just going to say one of the phrases I would often use with teachers as we were doing um, individual inquiry around our own professional learning and growth was that teaching is deeply personal, but professionally, it can't be. Professionally, we need to be able to interrogate our practices. We need to be able to explain our practices. We need to be able to be willing to dig in and maybe realize that learning styles aren't a thing. <laughs> Send the hate mail now, for real, not a thing. Myth has been busted. Long, long time ago, we hang on with teeth. But there are just some times where we have to be able to take ourselves outside of the puzzle. No, it's, I just that? did a session last week and it was interesting after I finished one of the one of the participants came up to me afterwards and said I love that you shared what you used to do and that you had to change what it was you were doing as you learn and I thought oh okay you know it's something that I that I say and say often um but that really resonated with that person because I think it's you know sometimes people you, you have a book published all of a sudden you've you're treated as the expert, but I think it's acknowledging that we all have our own learning journeys and that it, I've made big mistakes over my teaching career. And I wish I could go back to those poor students <laughs> and redo <laughs> really what 
what it is that, you know, whatever it was. But, you know, at the time I was doing the best that I could with what I had. And yes, did my master's in literacy change my thinking? You bet it did. And even my own my own writing practice changed the way I thought about teaching writing, for example, in the classroom. And so I think to acknowledge our own learning journeys is so important. And, and that was one of the things when I was writing Literacy Leadership Matters, that too is, is wanting people just to acknowledge, it's okay not to know, to not be the expert, you know, how could we be the expert on everything? We can't. And so to acknowledge the journey that we're all on is, is so critical. It shouldn't come as a surprise. Uh, it, I mean, we're here, we're talking in the literacy realm, but, and I'd like to hope that it applies in all of the elements of teaching, but there's no doubt about it in my mind. The, the 1986 second year junior high English social studies teacher um, did not assess in the best ways possible. <laughs> and and I like to hope that the 10 years later, high school social studies English teacher did a little better and the 10 years later, uh, still teaching while in admin did a little better. That You know, the, when you learn more, do more, when you learn a better way do a better way That's and right. the same thing does apply to all of this as you say people are doing the work presenting the work and you know sure we should not you know it, this is the 40th year of education for me but i i hope it isn't one year repeated 40 times that's right right that, that's kind of the piece of it and yet, hey, I really like this unit. Okay, like that unit, love that unit. What other books could be used better? How might you do this? Sharpen the saw. Like that, that's all just sharpen the saw. So true. And fantastic. Important in our classrooms. Important for each of us, right? To mm -hmm. to acknowledge that we're on that journey. There's that reflective practice again. You know, not just making the assumptions that we can just keep going without thinking about, you know, the, the impact on our students. Who uh, played a major role in inspiring you and in getting to where you are sharing what you know and supporting teachers? What, what, what drove you to this shift in your career path, Karen? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think there was a serendipitous collision that occurred uh, in about, it was probably about 2007, somewhere around there. I was doing my master's of literacy at the time in literacy, and I was also pursuing my own writing a little bit more at, at the time as well. I had actually let, gone out of high school into journalism. You know, my, my family is full of teachers, and here I decided that I was going to write and then I went into journalism and I realized it was the wrong type of writing for me. I didn't enjoy it. It was very formulaic. I felt it was very intrusive on people's lives. And it didn't, it, you know, at a vulnerable time sometimes. And it just didn't suit my personality. So when I went into education, I realized, yes, this is this is where I was meant to be. I, you know, I had that acknowledgement. Um, but then at a certain point in my career, I started writing again more faithfully. And, you know, I've always been a writer in some in some way. Um, but it was when I was doing, you know, went back to school for my postgraduate and then also was pursuing my own writing when I fell upon the quote by Mem Fox. And she said, I wish we could change the world 
by creating powerful writers for forever instead of indifferent writers for school. And I remember thinking, yes, <laughs> that's exactly. Press pause there before you expand on this. Ladies and gentlemen, we will capture that quote and it will be <laughs> in the writing <laughs> on the flyer that goes with this, uh, the website post that goes. I got goosebumps, Karen. I, oh, good. I think good. I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to repeat the quote. Would you, maybe you have it on a sign on your wall right above you, but I think it's emblazoned oh, in your heart. It's in my, it's in my brain. Yeah. So, so re repeat it and then tell us about it. So Mem Fox in Radical Reflections said this, I wish we could change the world by creating powerful writers for forever instead of indifferent writers for school. And when I read that, I, I, I was teaching grade six at the time and I was thinking about all the reluctant writers in my classroom because there were many and I was exploring my own process as well. And I thought, yes, isn't that what we want? I don't want them writing for me as a teacher. I want them writing because it is something that they're going to be doing every day of their lives. And so that really, that quote just struck me and it sort of guided me through the rest of my masters and it, it gave me purpose. And I honestly think that I'm here today because I stumbled upon those words and I started thinking about what I want for my students in my classroom. When I started approaching the teaching of literacy with that in mind, thinking about empowering my students for forever and not because it's curriculum, not because I have to teach it because it says so in the curriculum, that changed. I have those conversations with my students all the time. I, I've done that ever since. I say, you know, why do you think we're doing this? And that could be for the reading, that could be for the writing or the combination of both. And I do that now with writing residencies. I go into classroom after classroom after classroom and we have the same conversation. Why do we do this? And as soon as kids start seeing the purpose and they realize that this is well beyond what you're doing within these four walls, it changes things. That's the beginning of the change. And I also had an experience when I was an administrator that I share with students, usually during that same conversation. And so I'll say to them, I once had this, this mom come into my office in tears and, and I'll ask, why do you think she was in tears that day? And God love them, the kids always say, the, their go-to answer is always that their her child was being bullied. That's typically <laughs> what they say. <laughs> and I say, you know, no, she, her children weren't being bullied. Any other guesses? What what do you think what had her so upset that day? And if they know me or who I am or why I'm in their building, they might say because her child didn't know how to read or write. But in the hundreds of classrooms that I've had this conversation, no one has ever figured out that she herself was illiterate. And she mm. shared that with me on that day. And we talk about the emotion around literacy and how when we have access, we don't really think much about it. But when we don't have access, the frustration, the shame, all of the embarrassment, all of those things. And so with kids, I'll ask them, how do you think she was feeling on that day? And why do you think she was feeling that? And they always want to know why she came to me on that day. And I don't know why she picked me, but I'm certainly glad she did. But the reason she came and how sad is this, the day before her child had been diagnosed with food allergies. And she was terrified. 
she didn't know how she was going to be able to protect her child, how she was going to read ingredients, how she was going to be able to, to ensure that her child was not going to be affected by these life-threatening allergies. And so, you know, even th that was, I'm sure that was a decade ago that that occurred. And I still have a very, very, you know, emotional reaction when I think of that encounter that we had that day. And kids always want to know what I did. How did you help her? What did you do? But, but I think my reason for telling the story to them is so that they see, you know, I say, what, what couldn't that mom have done with her kids? She couldn't have read them bedtime stories. She couldn't read a menu at a restaurant. She couldn't read their school newsletters. You know, we just talk about some of the playing games with each other. You know, some of those things we absolutely take for granted. And I think kids maybe even more so than some of us as adults, where they just assume that everyone around them can read and write. And that's not always the case for a multitude of reasons. So connected to the Mem Fox quote and this story, we, we talk about literacy as a form of empowerment. And we are doing this so that you can function in the world more, more fully, so that you can participate in the world more fully. And I think that that really changes as a teacher, it changes what we do in the classroom. And it's not even, we're not even yet talking about practice because we have so much we can say about how we put it into practice, but that's just the mind shift that begins this, this whole um, process. Uh, you're talking about the fuel for the fire, you know. Exactly. I, I've I've shared previously, and we'll, we'll be very brief on this. But it, as I was teaching the dash twos today, but the thirteen twenty three thirty three stream in my past, uh, the insistence that I had that they would be comfortable reading out loud, and there would always be pushback, and I would always say, as long as you promise never to reproduce, you don't have to learn how to read out loud. Joking, of course, <laughs> but but only a little bit, and mm -hmm. uh, that would certainly get their attention. And we had great relationships and chuckle, chuckle. And so then I take it to the next level, which means, of course, you can't do anything that might lead to reproduction. So uh, as long as you make that promise, you don't have to read out loud, <laughs> and then find <laughs> ways for them to safely read out loud. But what was the why? If you can't read to your your children, and you'll probably all have children. If you can't read to your nieces and nephews, if you don't have children, uh, this is not a full life, you know. And, and your story reminds me of Naval's work and her story about the teaching her father English, mm -hmm. you know, as a as an immigrant coming in, coming back to that whole uh, EAL piece, it's just without the ability to communicate and I remember what it was like when I first got to Japan decades ago and to not be able to read and uh, and and read the Japanese language and learning how to read by reading to a lady who saw the atomic bomb explode in Nagasaki in 19 when I was there in 1978 uh, and and every single symbol that I could read over those two years every additional symbol changed my ability to do everything mm -hmm. And I think it's the same in, in every language around the world. You so know, that's the we, why it powers it, right? Charlie? Yeah. And well, as you were telling that story, Karen, I just couldn't help but think about the privileged space we hold as literate people. And 
you know, there's lots of times where we talk about access and, and, you know, people get all a little bent out of shape with giving certain groups rights. And, you know, it's not pie. It's not like you're going to have less rights if, if these people have more rights, but we never have that conversation around the privilege of being literate. Right. We just, we want everyone to have that, that experience. And, um, I, I've never really thought of it as a privilege before. And, and that's kind of that conversation, you know, that framing of that conversation you had with, with kiddos. I love it. And I, and I really tie it to the emotion. I think when yeah. they get to it on an emotional level, it, it changes things. Right. And, and they always, you know, <laughs> their own emotion in those situations often comes up. And some, sometimes some of them will share a story with me of a, of a grandparent or of an, of, you know, someone that they know, but most kids have never really thought about it. Like, you know, like you say, Charlie, it's, it is something that we, we often just take for granted that those around us are going to be literate and, and have the same access we do. And that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Well, the author and, and behavioral scientist BJ Fogg will emphasize that uh, the author of Tiny Habits um, will emphasize that all habits are cemented by the feeling. And that that's the piece that that's why he emphasizes so much that you've got to have an element of celebration as close to doing what you set out to do. And it now makes me think, you know, when, when our little ones are learning how to read, it's so important that we celebrate every success along the way because of the feeling that that creates. And so then they're going to read more and, and, and grow important, important stuff, emotion, Power. We started with empathy. It's all kind of stringing together. All isn't it? coming together. <laughs> it's sad that I think about talking to grade one teachers, and I will say to them, "Do you have any? You know, we'll talk about reluctant writers and readers." And already at that young age, there are some who who have a negative emotion tied to literacy and what you know our goal is, is to to change that immediately to give them like you said the positives and to to open the doors for them so we are unlocking the door to literacy instead of you know I think for some of them it already feels like it's been slammed in their face and we have to be really careful about that early on and and elementary teachers in my mind have this wonderful opportunity to excite their students about literacy to to show them the opportunities um, and, and I think that's a very, you know, privileged place to be in an elementary classroom. Hmm. Karen, we well were checking said. out your blog and uh, in a recent blog post, you wrote, I've noticed that whenever I'm surrounded by creative people and works of art in whatever form I'm inspired to create. What about our students? Do we provide them with the opportunity to read powerful literature, view innovative works of visual art and listen to various forms of music? How might we be more intentional in surrounding our students with such artistry? Can you talk a little bit about that and what it might look like in a classroom if you were in charge of the world? <laughs> if I could make these decisions across these classrooms, I, I do just believe so much in that fact that creativity spurs creativity, you know, and, and I will sit in a theater production and what do I want to do? I want to write. It's not even necessarily the same, you know, kind of creativity. I mean, obviously a writer was influential in that process, but just listening to what's going on the stage and visually looking at, I'm, 
constantly amazed at how those situations inspire me. And so when I'm thinking about the literature, you know, I have one of my favorite all-time books, adult child any book, is Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. It is a, a novel in verse. It's actually a memoir. Um, it is the most beautiful piece of literature that, that I can think to share with our elementary students. And if you could see my copy, it's flagged and, and marked with just these phrases that are just stunningly beautiful. And we know that how important, let's say, mentor texts are for our student writers. How do we ever expect our students to have good quality writing if they don't see or hear good quality writing? And it's not just about the writing. I mean, that's part of it. But visually, I think about picture books as well. That's another way that like, it's so much fun when we think about the picture books that we can surround our students with. This is artistry. You know, Mel Fell is a book by Corey Tabor and it is so much fun. It's, it's in an unconventional way. You hold the book unconventionally, you turn the book in a few different situations. The birds are falling down the tree, um, the squirrels. It's just unconventional and it's artistry, it's craft. And when we think about ensuring that our students are exposed, we could use our familiar favorites all the time, but if we look at the world of, of you know, let's stick for books for a minute, the world of picture books has really changed in the last five years, six years, mm -hmm. especially, you know, where there is definite artistry and craft. There's another book that I have here called the Black Book of Colors. And this book is actually written in Braille and the pictures, if you were to look at the book, you can't see the pictures, you can only feel the pictures. And so all of these really are a way of helping our students be inspired by what someone else has created. And if you were in my classroom, not only would you be surrounded by good quality books all the time, but we would be listening to music. We would be watching um, animated shorts that are so creative and the, the themes and, the, and the, the messages that are conveyed and, and talking about that craft, that's what it really is. Like someone has been able to, here we go back to emotion. Someone has been able to use this craft to tap into our emotion. How did they do that? Those are the, the most fun conversations you can have with kids is because they start thinking about not just what it is and how did you feel and what did you, but how did the, the creator do that and have that effect on us? And I love those kinds of conversations. So I really, you know, I, I surround my students with, with art of all kinds, whether it be visual art, whether it be, you know, talking about, I mean, Monet happens to be one of my favorites, but there's so many. And just giving them that exposure to these wonderful artists, I do see it affecting our students. I see it inspiring them. And, and the conversations that we can have around it are phenomenal. So in the perfect world, in the perfect classroom, that's what I would see, you know, we're listening to different music as we write. We're letting students share music that they are, you know, uh, finding inspiration at the moment. And even when it's not the same for me, I might not be, be inspired by the same kinds of music or whatever it is, visual arts, but that exposure to different things I think is critical. And we want every student to be able to find their voice and relate to something and, and take something from what we're sharing with them. 
It makes me think, Karen, as you were sharing about, um, I did a project with uh, grade two students where we looked at color in film. And so it was a riff off of a grade nine unit of study, but um, because I had jumped down to grade two, I was like, you guys can do this too. Uh, but it was so interesting because they instantly picked up on how red can mean love or excitement, but it can also mean scary. And so then when we looked at certain characters and like the shade of red they were, they got it right away. And so it was really neat for them to tap into almost another level of literacy, visual literacy, and understanding those purposeful choices that are involved in every level of crafting something, right? Writers, there's no accidental words in there. Page layout, there's a reason this is over here and this is over there. What is the reason? And um, it also made me think of... Uh, once upon a time when someone made me teach classroom music who was that anyway it was um, not me I want it to was not you that. it was one of those years where you were like the cart lady and it was the dog's breakfast of teaching assignments I think it was my second year of teaching uh anyway um and we would listen to little snippets of classical music and they had to either write or draw what the music made them think of and we'd listen to it a few times and it was so cool to have the debriefing conversation because a lot of them would draw very similar things by hearing a piece of music. And, um, you know, how powerful can that be for some of our quote unquote reluctant writers? It's not a term I necessarily love. I just feel like we haven't found the key to that. You know what I mean? Um, but providing them with, some musical choices and let them write or draw and then have a conversation about that feeling that the music created and how that was then represented in the drawing or the writing that you've done. And what I find fascinating is sometimes as primary teachers, there's, there's an assumption that those conversations couldn't yet happen necessarily, that they're not ready for them. And yet what I find is completely the opposite. Sometimes those kids are the most open to them and when I'm thinking about the teaching of writing, I sort of have two major premises. One is let's push through the barriers and get them writing. Let's just, you know, make sure that we're getting them to, to write without the fear of assessment or someone else reading their work. Let's break through those barriers. But the other side of it to me is to get them to write well, we have to provide those mentor texts and those mini lessons and those kinds of things. And when I do that, I was um, in one classroom, I think it was a grade four or five combined class as a writer in residence. And that's exactly what we were doing. We have mini lesson, mentor texts, and, and revision, I bring revision right into our, our mini lessons. And as I, I looked at the clock and realized that that's all the time we have for today, I have to go to the next class, but I'll be back tomorrow. And this one student puts up his hand and he, and he sort of said it as he put up his hand, he said, but I want to keep learning. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that is a powerful statement. And little did I know until the teacher told me later that day that that is a student who does not, has not previously enjoyed writing, would never consider revising his work. And he was so excited because I think we, I just showed him that, showed him and the others that it's accessible, 
that if this author can do it, so can we. And really yep. breaking it down into those smaller pieces for them. And I and I often think of that that boy. And I was so glad that he blurted that out because I think it's true. We need to make it manageable so that they do feel empowered to keep learning and that they want to revise their work. Rick, do you want to nail us with that last perfectly timed question? I love it when we plan questions ahead of time and then the conversation gets us there. Like it's, it's kismet almost. <laughs> well, what, so I think we've already heard some, but, yeah, but do let's you have do some more. books? Yes. Yes. To, to close uh, today's episode, which always leaves the door open for another visit with Karen. Uh, do you have some books that you'd like to suggest for teachers for particular writers moves? i.e. mentor texts and things of that nature. Well, I do. My I, Amazon I, cart is open, Karen. You just go ahead and start. I've already got Mel Fell in the cart. So give me yeah, some Mel more. Mel Fell is so much fun. It is a, it, it's just fun because you can talk about everything from dialogue, from automatopoeia to placement on the page. So much fun. Lots there. Um, this is a great one, especially with our new curriculum, the way that it outlines the story parts called Night Owl, Night with a K. So we have our our Night yep. Owl by Christopher Denise. And it is a great one for story elements. Um, and really what I love about it is that when we look at curriculum for our our youngest ones and we're talking about, you know, the beginning and end of a story. And then, then we, so we start building and bringing in the problem and the setting and all of those different pieces. Night Owl is a great one to have those discussions around. Um, another couple that I love that are great for word choice and sentence fluency. If you haven't seen the fantastic flying books of Mr. Morris Lesmore, mm -hmm. a little bit of a mouthful there, but that's this is by William Joyce. And I love using this book with kids in particular for word choice. And even uh, when we're thinking about crafting sentences as a whole. And sometimes when teachers think word choice, they're thinking individual words. And one of the things that this book does very nicely is that it actually has, it's, it's about the combination of words. It's about how words work together, not simply, um, you know, individual words. And another one that is actually really fun for word choice as well, which kids love, and I love that they often haven't seen it, is called Whale in a Fishbowl. And it's quite humorous as well. And it's by Troy Howell and Richard Jones. And I use it for some of those same things. When we're talking about sentence fluency, we're talking about, you know, how we can really have impact, uh, word choice, everything from um, the, the how the sentences are constructed to how they lead from one page to the other. Those kinds of things are beautiful. And then if you're looking for, uh, well, I'll share one more that I have. Uh, another one is called I Hate My Cats, A Love Story. <laughs> and I, first of all, I am like severely allergic to cats. So I always um, will share with students uh, my, my allergies. And so I say, I didn't pick this book because I'm allergic to cats. But this one, what I love, I use picture books with all grade levels, all grade levels. I, I think they're a powerful tool in every classroom. And it's always interesting when I walk into an older class, if I get eye rolls when I pull out a picture book, I know that they're not used to having picture books read to them. And then immediately, you know, you're two pages in and they're totally engaged in eating it up. But this one is fun. It's very simple, very short. But but what I love about this one is the the humor and the sarcasm that some of the older students would get. So um, I hate my cats, a love story. 
uh, is another favorite. And even thinking about um, voice and, and uh, perspective, those kinds of things. So those are just a few. I honestly could talk about suggestions all day long, but those are just a few. I, I love that you mentioned in the middle of that, I use this for all, or use picture books for all grades. That makes perfect sense, especially with the growing interest in animated novels or illustrative no novels and those sorts. Do you have a particular fave for the six or seven to nine or 10 to 12? It depends what I'm doing with them. So, you know, um, I really, what I do is I, on the inside of my books, I always put a little post-it note in terms of what I use the book for, what I like using the book for. So when I read a new book or, you know, I'll go to the store or the library, whatever, and come home with a pile. And first thing I do is I'm looking for something um, that I can use it for. So sometimes it's deliberate repetition. And that's a very interesting craft move because we know that our kids sometimes use repetition, but not very deliberately. <laughs> You know, they start the sentence the same way every time. But what we that's why I love a, a lesson on deliberate repetition, because then they learn how to use that effectively. So it's hard to pick one. Um, most of my books, I wouldn't hesitate to use them in a, in a seven to nine classroom, to be quite honest. I just set it up. It's how you how you approach it with the kids that I think is important, because if you um, say, you know what, I'm reading this one to you today because of the craft moves the author makes, I can read it to you in a short amount of time. You know, it's just all about setting it up. So it's not that I read different ones necessarily. One of the ones that they do enjoy that I've already mentioned is the Fantastic Flying Books of Mr. Morris Lesmore. This mm -hmm. actually was made into an animated short that I believe even won an Academy Award many years ago. Um, so this is one that I find that if you're going to start with something, you start with something that has a lot of depth to it generally, so that they can see why you might be choosing this one. Um, but once you start, I find they're pretty open to whatever it is. I feel like that book used to have an app that went with it that kind of 3D'd it as you moved it over the pages. Yes, it did. It, I'm not sure it does anymore, but it, you're right. It did at one point. This one's been around for a while. I often share new books, but this is one of my favorites. It's been around for quite some time. And like I said, it's interesting for kids. You mentioned the visual side of it too. We read the book first, but then when they can watch the animated short, then we can talk craft in a whole new way. And that's something teachers say to me that they're not always you know, confident thinking about the craft moves that a writer has made or a creator has made. And, and often we, we can just ask those questions and let the students, you know, they, they'll notice things that we might not even notice sometimes. And so really letting that uh, the students drive that conversation can be powerful too. Feels like you would openly embrace multi multimodalities of, of uh, representing your work in an Absolutely. English language arts classroom. Uh, and so with all of that, then uh, I have this, this was taught to me by Adelie Penner years ago, these little rabbits that are the Yabat rabbit, you know, so you're presenting away and you, this has all been incredibly inspiring. And then someone says, yeah, but they need to write a five paragraph essay for the diploma or the PAT. Do you have a response for that? I do. I think the most important thing is we have to change their mindset 
about writing. We have to have them willing to take risks and confident about their, their writing abilities. And we break through those barriers first. Then when we start teaching the specific skills to make them stronger writers, that's when we can talk about the specific form that we're writing, the specific techniques that are used. You know, that's going to be there. And, and so I absolutely know that, you know, it's not only that I want them to write, I do want them to write well, but I think we have to think about it as a process and ensure that we're motivating them to write first, getting them excited about those decisions that they can make. And then we show them the models, the mentor texts, and, and through the mini lessons, they do their revision and they see what they're capable of. And that's one of my greatest joys when I'm teaching writing is that when students say, I didn't know I could do this. And mm. that's what we want. We want them all to realize that they have that capability. Um, what, whatever level they happen to be at, they have it in them if we just guide them there. And that's so true. Like Again, thinking about the, the behavior model that... Uh is espoused by bj fogger is behavior happens when there's motivation ability and prompt and if any of those three are at a zero the behavior doesn't happen so in the absence of motivation it's not going to happen in the absence of ability it's not going to happen in the absence of prompt it's not going to happen and uh, you you look at this and say hey, yeah we're we're prompting them with this okay we're raising levels of motivation through experiences of success from tiny steps to big steps. And it's on us as teachers. It's the instructional moves that we make that get our mm -hmm. students there. And knowing that it's not going to happen in one day, that it, it is a process, and, and, but we, we can get them there. I, I, you know, John Hattie always says, know thy impact. And yeah. it's true. We do have that ability to impact our students beautiful thank you so much for spending this time with us uh, today and uh, we'll we build out a, a blog post that goes on the arpdc website that will list all the titles that you've uh, reviewed and it'll have the link to your website and and uh, of course we look forward to you presenting uh, and working with districts and divisions uh, karen is available uh, to be contacted and contracted to work with uh, schools and school divisions. And uh, I know I will be reaching out to you to do a couple of sessions uh, down in the South. We already had talked about one, the date didn't work, but uh, and about to doing a couple of sessions that are available provincially online. So really appreciate you spending this time. Look forward to uh, checking out your book and uh, sharing that with uh, our literacy leads. And uh, do you have any final words or thoughts you'd like to share before we close up and, and then Charlie? No, I think that, um, you know, I've enjoyed the conversation very much. You get me talking about books and writing and that's my happy place. So all good. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Karen. Um, I believe I might've just spent my entire paycheck from this portion of time on book purchases, which is the double-edged sword of doing this particular podcast. Uh, but thank you so much. And uh, it is also my happy place. And I know that our listeners um, are going to take your words of wisdom and your enthusiasm for literacy instruction and um, use that as, as some of the fuel uh, to help them in their practice and the work that they're doing. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And we'll both. chat again soon. Sounds good.
and we'll be back with another episode in the weeks ahead. Thank you to all those who uh, listen to our podcasts and follow us. Uh, We are available on all of the regular channels where you get your podcasts. Happy learning. Stay awesome, everybody, and take care.